Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's edition of The Cheapest Meal, presented by Deep Fried Draft. My name is Brian Bosarge. Got a great guest coming up in just a second. I'm going to talk right now what's going on at big uh, deepfrieddraft.com. New mock draft just dropped today. Check that out. Uh, had a post yesterday, top five true deep sleepers uh, that can impact in the NFL. Go check that out at deepfrieddraft.com. Right now, we're going to bring in our guest. He is the senior draft analyst for the Draft Network and the co-host of the Draft Dudes podcast and the host of the Locked On Bills podcast. He is my good friend, Joe Marino. Joe, thanks for joining me tonight. Hey, what's up, Ryan? Good to be on with you, man. Hey, man. Uh, first of all, before we get into everything I want to talk about, uh, I, I got a, a personal statement to you. Uh, I just want to say how envious I am of guys like you, and you've had the balls to take the risks that you've taken and you put it all – Put in the time it takes to not only get your dream job, but you're making a, a living doing it, Joe. I, I am envious. <laughs> Thanks, man. It's uh, it's been a long it's been a long journey to to get to this point, and um, you know, very thankful. I think there's probably some luck along along the way that's helped me out, but uh, excited to to see some hard work pay off and some dreams to come true, and really excited about what we're doing over at the Draft Network. Yeah, I, I check you guys' side out. Uh, every morning while I'm drinking my coffee at work, you know, going through, seeing the new stuff uh, on there. It's just great content on a daily basis, and I would advise anybody to check out the draftnetwork.com. Joe, before we get into some serious stuff, let's get into some silliness that uh, I I saw today. There appears to be a Twitter beef going on there between some of your uh, fellow Draft Network mates and the Bleachers Reports, Matt Miller. Uh, What's up with that? Uh, you know, um, I mean, I've, I've seen, I've seen some of that. Uh, you can probably tell from my personality and how I, how I kind of interact on Twitter that I, I, I pretty much stay, stay about my business. You know, I, I have more to deal with than, you know, some comments. So I, I mean, I, I didn't really engage with that. I'm certainly aware of it, but you know, I, I think, um, you know, it's that time, time of year where we kind of getting into the thick of draft season. We're, you know what less than 40 days away from this thing and uh you know i think it's it could could cause for some some interesting uh conflict but uh you know i don't i don't put much into it and you know not to be like a pr guy but i'm just kind of focused on you know my own evaluations and my own work and what i still have left on my plate to get ready for this draft coming up well all things considered i'm on team tdn and not team matt miller I don't really like that guy anyway. So <laughs> let's uh, let's get into some Bills talk here. And uh, not a great season altogether speaking, but tell me what are, what do you feel the first how you feel the first year of the Josh Allen experience went? Well, I, th- I think there's a lot of variables that really matter with year one of Josh Allen, and also the context of where the bills were at with their rebuild. I mean, $50 million in, in dead cap space that they were committing to players that weren't on the team. And if you, uh, 
if you compare that to the the big aggressive free agent haul that they just had, it equals about $50 million. And so you're talking about an undermanned team to begin with last year. And I think that that's really important to consider uh, just how lacking the bills were in talent because they were at that point in their rebuild. It's something that McDermott and Bean have acknowledged and, uh, uh, they took a calculated step in that direction to kind of just, you know, rip the Band-Aid off last year and, and, and go through their lumps and, and be able to set themselves up to be aggressive in free agency this year. They're projected to have the most space in free agency next year uh, in terms of cap space. They have 10 draft picks. And so it's it's time now for the Bills to start building. And so with that out of the way, I mean, looking back at the Josh Allen year one, I think you have to talk about the dynamics of of where Josh was, right? He, he comes out of Wyoming, he's a top 10 pick, and it's a three-way battle for the starting jobs, you know, right away. It's it's Nate Peterman, AJ McCarron, Josh Allen. And so Josh Allen was never the guy. He didn't win the starting job. Nate Peterman did. AJ McCarron was cut. And then all of a sudden, Nate Peterman throws a million interceptions in, in his first game. And at halftime, the, the Josh Allen era begins. And you know, it's it's uh, he started off, he really struggled. You know, he, it certainly didn't help that he had a poor offensive line and his top two receivers are Kelvin Benjamin and Andre Holmes, uh, but he really struggled. I, I mean, I, I wrote a piece earlier in the season that said Josh Allen limited a bad supporting cast, and I, I believe that was true at the time. And, and he really uh, just, you know, he left so much on a fee, out on the table in terms of his reads and he was missing throws and taking bad chances with the football and just wasn't comfortable. And, you know, I think part of that is he wasn't ready to play. And, that, you know, when you go into the season with Peterman and McCarron as your two starter, as your two, excuse me, Peterman and Allen as your two guys, you know, and Peterman wins that job, it, you know, the intent was not for Josh Allen to play early, but the Bills didn't have a choice. Um, and then he showed some flashes throughout the first, course the half of the season then he got injured with that elbow thing probably the best thing that's ever happened to him because it was during that time where the Bills signed Matt Barkley and they signed Derek Anderson and they let go of of Kelvin Benjamin and Andre Holmes and all of a sudden Robert Foster and Isaiah McKenzie more speedy receivers get playing time and they upgraded their left guard spot by having Wyatt Teller start and so all these things were really different and he had this four four game stretch here to kind of observe observe you know let see other people do the job uh, the infrastructure around him approved. And then the, the last half of the season, Josh Allen played really, really well. I mean, he took a major step forward. He was the best player on the field for the Bills offensively. He was a big reason why they were able to, you know, go from what was a historically bad offense to one that is was, was really productive over the end of the season and difficult to defend and, you know, really shift the dynamics of Josh. And so he excited about what he can be in, you know, moving forward, obviously with the, with the year under his belt, with the, much improved infrastructure around him. And then him being the guy from the outset, you know, this, this year, there won't be any shared time. He'll get all the first team reps and really allowing Brian Dable to build the offense around Josh Allen and for there to be more volume of plays at his, at his disposal, but also, you know, more comfort and, and, uh, and just, you just expect growth. So I think it was quite the journey with Josh Allen and you get excited about what happened the last half of the season. Yeah. Um, the little bit I saw there, there's a, there's a lot to, you can look forward to. Obviously, you know, some of the stuff that worried a lot of people in the draft process is still there as well. So it's not all wine and roses, I guess, but uh, the bills have been active in free agency so far. Their big catch probably center Mitch Morse. Uh, so it's good to see that 
at least one organization isn't stupid enough to put up with Russell Bodine for very long. And uh, two wide receivers, uh, uh, Cole Beasley and John Brown. You get a speedy guy in Brown and a security blanket in Beasley. Uh, anybody else out there that they may be looking at to add in this late process, or is, or is they're pretty that pretty much going to be it? You know, I, I think the Bills would probably love to get a, an impact player on the defensive line. Now, that may have to come in the draft, but, you know, they brought in Ziggy Ansa for a visit who's taking his time with his decision, and obviously the Bills need to feel comfortable with his medicals, and we'll see if there's any other defensive linemen that come along that could be available. But, uh, you know, I think there are some short and long-term concerns with Buffalo's defensive ends and defensive tackles, and so I think if an opportunity came to make a make a big move there, they still have plenty of cap space. I think they would probably do that uh, on the defensive line. So um, the AARP backfield, uh, I don't think you quite called it that, but you have the three oldest, you, was it, you said the three oldest running backs in the NFL now play for the Bills. Well, now that Adrian Peterson signed his contract, I don't know if that's true anymore. But, oh. yeah, I mean, it's an aging backfield. They're obviously with 36-year-old Frank Gore and then Chris Ivory and LaShawn McCoy that are – both over 30 years old. So uh, they're, they're older. Um, but I mean, Frank Gore's coming off one of his best seasons of his career in terms of yards after contact and, uh, and his PFF grades. So, I mean, it, Frank Gore's still producing even at an older age, but I think what that really does is you talk about a bills team here. That's now without Kyle Williams, who was the, you know, the face of the franchise for so long and replacing that leadership and really having more guys outside of Lorenzo Alexander that are veterans that can really connect coach McDermott's, message to the locker room you get excited about Frank Gore in that capacity I mean over 3,000 rushing yards he's 36 years old he's top five all time in rushing yards and this dude wants to keep playing he loves ball and I think that's going to be important he's also tight with LaShawn McCoy and so you hope that you know having those guys together will help you get what's uh, what's left in the tank out of Shady as well a guy that I know it's important for him to get to that 12,000 career rushing yards mark but you know I think I think jokes aside here with the age yeah, I think it really matters to have experience in the backfield along with Josh Allen. You know, with guys like Gore and McCoy, there's going to be no time or worry spent uh, for Josh Allen, you know, with guys lining up in the right place or hitting holes correctly or pass protecting. And so I think from that perspective, in this point of Josh Allen's career, it really makes sense for him to have experience with him in the backfield. And then you can re- redo the, the position next year with draft picks or free agent signings, but, you know, at that point, Josh Allen will be in year three, and so I think it's—I think it's a benefit to him to have have experience back there with him. I don't disagree with that at all. Um, last question on the Bills veteran players before we move on to the draft portion of this. Um, Zay Jones, what did we miss with him? Because it's—it's it's going into his third year now, I believe. My—I know I did. I thought I had a late first, early second round grade on him. And it's just it hasn't been there. What what happened? Well, I think I think there's a lot of context that matters. I, I don't think it's just that he's been a, a, a total disappointment. In year one, I mean, he could not get on the same page with Tyron Taylor, and so it was really disappointing to see, you know, a lot of drops, uh, just really poor in terms of targets, you know, to receptions, and you know, part of that was him dropping the ball. Part of that was Tyron not not putting it in good spots. But he really struggled to acclimate in year one. Now, year two, he, he got a lot better. He caught 56 balls for 652 yards and seven touchdowns on one of the worst offenses in the league, you know, with, with really bad quarterback play collectively. And so 
I think he did take a step forward last year, and that comes uh, in after an off season where he had the the funky situation with the with the with the hotel room where he hurt himself and he had knee uh, surgery and all that type of stuff, and he put together a pretty good season. And so, you know, he's a guy that I thought improved throughout last season, got more comfortable with Josh Allen. You really saw him put, make some big time plays in the Miami game late in the season, and so you know I think he'll be an important part of the offense next year. And, um, you know, I, I mean, you're certainly not in a thousand yard receiver or anything like that, but I don't think, you know, the, the wins out of the sales here with Zay Jones. That's good to hear. Cause he was one of my favorite, uh, one of the favorite guys I've talked to at the senior bowl over the last couple of years, just a really engaging young man. when I did, when I saw the stuff with the hotel and all that, I'm like, man, that just kind of took me off guard. Didn't expect that from, uh, from him. Uh, Bill's picking ninth this year, Joe. What's in play? You know, I, I think it – I really do think the Bills have done so much in free agency. They've, I mean, they've signed five offensive linemen, rosterable offensive linemen, three that I think have legit opportunities to start. They made two big plays at receiver in getting John Brown and Cole Beasley and, um, and even uh, Andre Roberts, uh, who will be a rosterable receiver. So combined with Foster and Zay Jones, there's five receivers right there. You know, I think the Bills have freely set themselves up to, to either go with an impact defensive lineman, an edge rusher, uh, maybe a guy like Montez Sweat or Brian Burns, uh, or a defensive tackle, a guy like Christian Wilkins or Ed Oliver, where the Bills could really use a, a dynamic three technique, um, and they can use, you know, after this season, the only defensive end under contract is Trent Murphy. Well, Trent Murphy's not going to be a lead edge rusher on a, on a top-tier NFL defense, and so you need to start adding pieces right now to improve that situation. So I can see defensive line being very much in play and then also tight end. I think that's a, a low key uh, spot where Buffalo would love to get a more dynamic player. They have Jason Kroom, uh, who is uh, more of a move piece, a versatile tight end, a guy that's going to help you more in the receiving game than as a blocker. He's a converted uh, wide receiver from Tennessee and he really emerged last season and made some plays. And then Tyler Croft, who they signed, who I think is probably, more of a backup tight end, a guy that does a little bit of everything, has good size and actually moves pretty well for a size, but he's not going to be your starting tight end where, you know, anyone's going to be super concerned about having to match up with him. And so, you know, that's it right now. That's the only two guys on the roster at tight end for the Bills. So I don't know if position value comes into play when you consider a guy like TJ Hawkinson and Noah Font there at, at number nine and where that value could be better at 40 with their second round pick. But to me, right now, it really looks like defensive line or tight end would be the most logical direction. So you don't believe a guy like DK Metcalf, even though I know they've signed the receivers, but they still don't have what you call a true number one, right? They got a looks like a bunch of number twos and threes. So DK Metcalf, not a guy you consider at nine. Well, it's that's an interesting question because when when. Bean and McDermott were asked about that at the combine. Uh, Sean McDermott said, uh, you know, specifically, hey, do you need a number one wide receiver? He says, man, I'm just looking for guys that can get open and catch the football. And, and Brandon Bean, when he was asked about a number one receiver, he said, uh, you know, I just want guys that Josh can rely on. I'm not really concerned with, with having a true number one. I mean, and then he kind of talked about uh, the dynamics of the, uh, the Patriots wide receiving core and how they didn't necessarily have a true number one alpha, number one X receiver. And so, then it got real, a little bit funky when there was some rumor that the Bills had engaged in some trade discussion with Antonio Brown. And you're like, wow, they were just feeding some, some lines there. And maybe the dynamics of Antonio Brown changed the, that, that discussion for them. But obviously that didn't go through. And then they turn around and they get separation guys and Beasley and Brown. And, and so, 
you know, I, I don't think we can dismiss wide receiver. I think that the Bills will add one at some point. Like you said, there. I mean, to an extent there, they really don't have much size at receiver. But I think that's something that Brandon Bean's kind of learning from, right? Like, you know, they even at Carolina, it was Greg Olson and, and Devin Funches and Kelvin Benjamin around Cam Newton. And there's some, some similarities in Cam Newton and Josh Allen is that in that they're both not very pinpoint with their, with their ball placement. And so, you know, having towering receivers isn't always the best recipe for uh, an erratic quarterback. You just need guys that can get open. And so I think uh, it's, I, I love DK Metcalf. He's a top five player for me in this draft. So I'm not saying he can't get open, but I don't think it's necessarily something that the bills are prioritizing. And if they want to get size at receiver, there's so many options that they could get on day two and like a Hakeem Butler or Calvin Harmon or, uh, J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, I think they may be more inclined to look at one of those players on day two and not at number nine, because I think if you want to get an impact defensive lineman, you got to get that at number nine. You're not going to wait and get that. I uh, see. I completely agree with what you're saying there. And I, I, every mock draft I've done, I keep seeing Ed Oliver fall, and it's like I can't slot him in anywhere. And I think, you know, like you said, maybe it's a spot at nine at Buffalo could be could be a place for Ed Oliver, you know, to, to go. Um, who is, uh, who's going to be this year's Terrell Edmonds, Rashad Penny guy, that's shocking player that goes in, on day one. Oh, that's really interesting. Here's the difference between, I'll, I have some names that come to mind. I think the difference between a player or two that I'm going to name right now and those players is maybe these players have some, have some merit to being <laughs> taken in the first round. So so I think uh, for the surprise factor, I'll, I'll give you two names, but not necessarily because they don't deserve it. Because I don't like this draft class that much in terms of having, like, I'm not going to have anywhere near 25 or 30 first-round grades, but there's 32 first-round picks, right? So that, you know, you're going to have guys that have second-round grades getting picked in the first round. And so the names that come to mind for me are Justin Lane from Michigan State, a cornerback, cornerback Omani Oruarie from Penn State, and then even Chase Winovich from Michigan, who, um, you know, I, I think for a team late in the draft, like the Rams, like the Patriots, like the Chiefs, that really could use an edge rusher, I think they'd be they'd be well served by considering a guy like Chase Winovich there uh, at the back, you know, the back portions of the first round. Yeah, uh, not so you don't you don't have anybody that you probably had a, a fourth round grade on like Terrell Edmonds going in the first round. <laughs> Well, I believe me, there will be a, a guy I have a fourth round grade that goes in the first round, but predicting who that is is I don't I don't know. I mean, those guys are guys I have second round grades on, but I don't think right now people are like widely expecting any of those three to go in the first round. Although I think it's uh it's a better possibility than maybe we think. Possibly. All right, we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we're gonna talk some ACC football with Joe Marino of the Draft Network. Are you thinking about a trip to Disney World, to Disneyland, and you don't know where to start? What's an ADR? How does that whole fast pass thing work? And what in the world is MDE? Let Rebecca Bosarge, Vacation Specialist with Coasters and Castles Travel, help. Her services are 100% free to her clients. She can take care of all those important details to make your family vacation the very special vacation that you want it to be. Rebecca Bosarge can book your rooms, your tickets, and vacation packages for any size group. Make dining reservations. Make all FastPass reservations. She can book special event tickets. Arrange any necessary transportation. She can also set up your My Disney Experience account and even create a personal itinerary for the duration of your trip. 
You will not have to stress over the details when you use a knowledgeable vacation specialist like Rebecca Bosarge. She can book Universal Studios, Busch Gardens, Alani, Adventures by Disney, and Disney Cruise Line, as well as all major theme parks and popular vacation destinations. Contact Rebecca Bosarge today to get your planning started by emailing her at rbosarge at coastersandcastlestravel.com. You can find her on Facebook at Coasters and Castles Travel, Rebecca Bosarge, and on Facebook at Rebecca B. C&C Travel. You can also find her on Twitter at VacationsRHB. Get in touch with her today. You won't regret it. We're back here on the cheapest meal with Joe Marino of the Draft Network. Uh, Joe, you're on the ACC beat this year. So my first question is, what the hell has happened to Florida State? Uh, well, I, I mean, obviously the the ugly ending there for Jimbo Fisher did some things, obviously. And, and I think Willie Taggart – I'm not a super high Willie Taggart guy. And uh, I don't love his ability to recruit. I don't love his game management. I, I've heard some questionable things about him and his leadership from some different players that I've spoken to. So I think, you know, kind of re- reestablishing a, a culture there is, is a struggle for them right now. And then, you know, they've always kind of under-recruited on the offensive line. For whatever reason, Florida State just can't get offensive linemen. And it's really been a, part of their Achilles heel for this offense that, has had good playmakers and, and talented quarterbacks, but, you know, you can't block, it's it's going to limit you. And so, um, you know, defensively they have some guys, but I think by and large it's it's redefining the culture at Florida State and then, you know, being really kind of uh, handicapped by the by the offensive line has been problematic for them. Yeah, I'm sitting here wondering, when I've, when I've seen Florida State just go down quick, with this, if I, I know they got all that big fat oil, them big fat oil checks out there at College Station, but you just gave Jimbo Fisher seventy five million, and you didn't look at the way he was leaving Florida State, and you're like, uh, maybe a little buyer's remorse, so to speak. It's tough to tell. I, I thought I thought he had a decent year one there with with Texas A and M, and there was there's a little bit more NFL talent in that team than maybe we we thought. As I get deeper into the scouting process and learn more about their personnel. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's, he's going to have to be able to recruit and he's going to have to do it in the SEC West where, you know, it's Auburn and Alabama and LSU. And so Texas A&M's kind of always been that fourth, fifth team. And so can they get into that top tier discussion? They're paying him a lot of money and he better make it happen. Well, it's probably not also helping his cause the fact that Texas now seems to be, on its way back. They're not back, but they're on their way back. And Oklahoma, you know, as good as they are, also coming in and recruiting that same area. So it's going to be tough for Jimbo. I don't really care one way or the other what happens with him or not since South Carolina plays him every year. So, But, uh, Joe, let's, uh, we, we, we talked about Clemson players to death. We know all about their defensive linemen and everybody else. So I want to talk about some other linebackers in particular from the ACC. Uh We'll start with Jermaine Pratt from NC State. You were one of the first guys that were talking him up. And after the Senior Bowl, I think his name, you know, started gaining more hay in that second, third round area. Yeah, I think that's – if you're going to go with a linebacker on day two, I think Jermaine Pratt's going to be the guy you want to get. Um, He initially stood out to me. I've been to so many NC State games. I've probably done seven trips there over the last two years. So I'm super familiar with NC State and their, their personnel. And, you know, Pratt was a guy who didn't start in 2017, 
but he just kept on making plays and sub packages, and you're like, wow, this guy needs to get on the field more. And uh, he did, you know, he obviously the seniors that were ahead of him, they graduated and he became kind of the leader of that defense in 2018. And he just filled up the stat sheet in every way possible, making tackles, tackles for loss, forcing fumbles, making plays on the football, a converted safety, um, like his ability in space. I think he, he's a very urgent player. I mean, he's, he's still got some technical work to do. Um, but, you know, I, I think this linebacker class is pretty poor. And, uh, you know, he's in discussion to be amongst the top three or four at the position and really would be a good day two pick for somebody. Yeah, I definitely think he's in that top three or four linebackers outside of the top two, probably the two Devons. He's probably one of the next ones in line there. Uh, A guy who I know you liked uh, during based off film work, but his testing was pretty shit. Uh, Joe Giles Harris from Duke. Yeah, you know, I went into his – I mean, for him, it was, the combine mattered as much as any other prospect um, just because I liked the way he processed, love his physicality, love his ability to tackle. He just just needed to know what type of athlete he was and, and because there were just times on tape where you're just – you know, there's certain landmarks he couldn't get to and some issues getting outside the tackles and making plays and just needed to know – you know, what type of athlete he was. And then he proved that he's a pretty poor athlete. And so, you know, I think if you're looking for an early down linebacker and a three, four, something like what Kansas city uses with Reggie Ragland, that type of niche linebacker, I mean, you're going to love to have Joe Giles Harris, but you just have to be honest with yourself and understand that there's some limitations that come with him, despite being, you know, one of the most prolific backers in the ACC over the last couple of seasons, I just feel like there's some, some, you know, today's NFL where it's pace and space and you need to be able to cover ground and you match up with tight ends in space and mirror those running backs as they work laterally. There's just too many limitations with, with Giles Harris athletically to project him to a big-time role. Um, kind of the opposite of Joe Giles Harris is where he maybe not was known from his film work, but his testing was superb. And that's North Carolina linebacker Cole Holcomb. Holcomb, talk to me about him. I think he's probably a late day three guy. I mean, he's an energy guy. I think he'll probably make a living playing special teams and providing depth. Uh, I don't think you know. I don't, I don't see a path to him being the starter. And he's been part of some pretty poor North Carolina defenses. And not that that's entirely his fault, but uh, I think he's more of an energy guy, guy that'll dress on Sundays because he can cover kicks. But I'm not, you know, I'm not targeting him as a guy with starter upside. I got you there. Uh, another North Carolina player I want to talk about is a uh, he was an early early declaree, a guy I didn't even know anything about until he declared, and that's their offensive tackle William Sweet. Uh, is is he a, does he have any NFL upside? I'll be honest with you, Brian. This is a player that I need to take a deep dive into. I was aware of who he was. But he wasn't a player that I took all that seriously as a prospect throughout the course of the season. And so he's a, he's a player on my, on my list that I need to get to in the coming weeks here. But not yet do I have an informed uh, opinion on him. Thank you for your blunt honesty, Mr. Marino. <laughs> all right. So now we've, we've, we've wrapped up our ACC prospect talk. Now let's get to the real reason I had you on here. I wanna ha- I've been wanting to have this philosophical discussion with you for a while because you were around – in the general area, you live in the Charlotte area, so you are near both of these programs. 
why can't South Carolina be Clemson? Not beat them. Why can't they be what Clemson is? They have the same recruiting base. They have equal facilities. And earlier this decade, South Carolina was kicking the crap out of them every year, five years in a row. But now here we are lagging behind everywhere in Clemson's winning two out of the last three national championships. Why can't South Carolina – why not us? <laughs> That's what Dabo Swinney would tell you, why not us, right? Um, uh, I think I think Dabo Swinney changed that Clemson program. And I give them a lot of credit because, you know, Clemson had a, you know, just sort of a disappointing program for so long. You feel like they're always on the cusp but never quite got there. And then, you know, they wind up – promoting one of their assistants, Dabo Swinney, a no-name, took a lot of criticism for that move. And somebody saw somebody something in that man, and he's one of the elite coaches in college football. And so because they have Dabo, because of what he's done to, to really change the culture there, everything else has followed in terms of the facility upgrades. Now, I know South Carolina just did some really good facility upgrades, but, you know, I mean, Clemson is probably in the top, three or five in the nation when it comes to facilities and resources available for their students. And obviously the winning tradition that's quickly been built there. And, you know, that those things are really going to matter and and the amount of NFL talent that they're producing. And so I think when you think about on-field performance, facilities, NFL talent, Clemson's really outpaced South Carolina. And now I, I get your point there. I mean, in the SEC East, they've hired, you know, they've hired big time coaches and Spurrier and, and Will Muschamp, but they didn't get a Dabo, right? I mean, and so that's 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 the difference. That's the difference. Dabo has transformed everything about Clemson. I mean, even he he backed it up. I mean, he called everyone out for for using that word Clemsoning, and he he turned them into a powerhouse. And so it's uh, it feels like South Carolina's uh, just behind right now. And you you like what they did with their facilities, but you know I, I know that. Will Muschamp, this is something that I've recently learned. I know that he's super high on academics and he's not very loose with that type of stuff. And, you know, I think that maybe that's allowing some prospects to get away from him, but Dabo's doing it at an elite level on par with the Nick Sabans of of the world. And so until they get that type of a dynamic coach, I think they're going to be playing, uh, playing second fiddle very much in South Carolina. I just I, I listen to him talk, and I just I can't I just cannot see how that all shucks gee golly stuff just works on seventeen and eighteen year old kids. I just I, I it just blows my mind, Joe. You know I, I it's uh, <laughs> I, I I don't know if I have an explanation for that. I've met I've met Dabo. I think he's a very genuine, authentic person. Um, I think that he really cares about relationships and getting to know people. And hey, if you're going to ask people to go to war for you that you invest in them personally. And I think that there's a, a deep, a deep, uh, you know, just a deep sense of togetherness with that program. And, you know, I think so, so often, so many times with, especially with the NFL and way, the way that we're seeing these head coaches getting hired. I mean, you look at the uh, Matt LaFleur's and the Zach Taylor's and the, uh, you know, the different co- the Cliff Kingsbury's of the world that are getting head coaching jobs. And I'm not saying all those aren't great men and that they won't be great culture builders, but, you know, those are guys that got their jobs because of their X's and O's and their schemes. And, and I think at, at the deep root of it, you know, football is still the ultimate team game and having that togetherness and having that brotherhood and, and knowing each other and loving your teammates and, 
and just having a, a very unified approach to what you're doing every day and, and really setting a strong standard and, hey, this is what we do, this is what we expect, and having that leadership in place, there's something about what Dabo's doing that's making all that stuff work. And so I, I think, you know, there's some cheesiness to him, but, man, I think he's just authentic and real and, and, and just people gravitate towards that and they love that and they want to work really hard for him. And he's had some really strong pieces. You look at guys like Deshaun Watson. Look at guys like Christian Wilkins. I mean, those guys are, are, are like culture-changing type people that set a high standard. And, and so I think that, uh, you know, that, that, that type of stuff really matters often some, sometimes more than X's and O's and sometimes even more than talent is that, that type of unison and togetherness and, hey, we got a chip on our shoulders. And, and you know, I think the best teams, man, they find ways to – to feel like people doubt them. Like you heard the Patriots all year long. They're talking about how everyone doubted us and wrote us off. Like, nah, dude, like maybe some people have, but everyone respects the hell out of you, but good teams find ways to believe that and and build on that message. Look at um, Clemson. I mean, Dabble, that's all he preaches. He talks about what, like the, the, some type of bus thing and how, you know, why not us? And just little old Clemson, like that stuff matters, man. And, and, and he finds a way to get the most out of his people. So, He's cheesy, I, I get it, but he's getting it done. You know, you used, you brought up, like, the Deshaun Watson and the, that guy and the recruiting class they had the year he brought in. That That is that is what it that, – that did it. I mean, that, that recruiting class was the, the one that set the bar in motion to where they are now. And hopefully – not saying it's going to happen, but hopefully the Ryan Holinsky – uh, at quarterback and Zach Pickens, five-star defensive end. Maybe those are the two must-champ recruits that sets the culture in motion to get South Carolina uh, somewhere in this on this level. I can hope and dream. But I by, guess, hey, anyway. Brian, I mean the thing the thing is you have really contrasting styles, right? So I mean, like on one hand, you look at Dabo and he's the the cheesy kind of <laughs> whatever he right. is, and then you have Will Muschamp, who is an in-your-face authoritarian, you know, type thing. And I mean, you have really contrasting styles there. And, 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 you know, for Miss for Muschamp, it always feels like, are they ever going to get the offense right? I mean, we've said that at Florida for a long time and now we're saying it in South Carolina, can the offense get right? I, I, I don't know. I hope so. But I mean, <laughs> you have the contrasting styles now where what seems to be the biggest rivalry in college football with Dabo and, and Nick Saban and, and Muschamp is, is from the Nick Saban tree. So, well, it can happen, I guess. Maybe, probably not. Um, speaking of Nick Saban, well, while we'll, 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 we'll do the last topic here, and then this will be it. Um, Nick Saban retires after this season in Alabama. They called Dabo, right? Yeah. I mean, he's the first one they call, right? 100%. And, and I think this is the biggest question that remains is, does Dabo Swinney go home to Alabama where he played his college ball, where he has his roots, and leave little old Clemson to go be their coach? And if that happens, then the tide continues to roll, and then we have questions about Clemson. But um, there's also a part of me that probably looks at Dabo and says, hey, he might really like what he's doing at Clemson and want to be there and continue to to do what he's doing there. So I think I think one of those two things will happen. I mean, not not to to kind of state the obvious, but he's either going to stay at Clemson or he's going to go to Alabama. 
I also don't think we should be saying Nick Saban's retiring anytime soon. You know, I think some of these guys, man, they, they're without football. They just, they don't function. And so I think Saban's one of those guys where I don't, I don't see him just playing golf all the time, you know? <laughs> like, so, so uh, I don't, I don't know if the Saban era is uh, anywhere near over. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's the big, the big question mark is will Dabo Swinney be his successor? Because you, you look at Dabo, you think he can coach for a long time, but then you also see guys that would just, you know, they retire early. So what Dabo plans on doing for the next 25 years is a good mystery. Yeah. I, I think the only place, the only place Dabo leaves Clemson for is Alabama. I, and, and I believe oh, the yeah. only place Saban leaves Alabama for is the house. I don't. I don't think he's. I think we're past the time where he's he's uh, he's going anywhere else. He'll he'll go to ESPN and that'll be his next stop after he leaves Bama. Right. Let's wrap this up. Talk about the the the, the Twitter draft changing machine that you the mock draft machine over at the Draft Network. Uh, you got a game changer there for you guys with the mock draft machine and build your own big board. Yeah, we're we're really excited about those interactive features. I mean, I, I think we do a good job delivering content in terms of podcasts and written content and stuff you can read and get our analysis. But, you know, now you can come and be the expert over at the Draft Network and you can make your own big board and you can, you can use this interactive tool that makes it very user-friendly to stack up players and change your rankings and uh, uh, stack the big board for as many names as you want. You can do – Five names, you can do 500 names. So as many names as you want, and then you can use that big board or our predictive big board or our consensus big board in our mock draft machine, and you can conduct your own simulations. And I think it's really cool. You can you can be one or 32 teams, as many teams or as few teams as you want to be, and make the picks for those team or teams. And the rest of it runs off of a simulation that uh, we really feel good about the algorithm that we have put together to, you know, factor in team needs, but also best players on the board and, you know, try to give you the most realistic mock draft simulation experience that you can, you can have. So, uh, you know, definitely encourage the listeners to uh, head over to the draftnetwork.com and, and uh, have some fun on our interactive tools. Absolutely. Uh, last thing, Joe, I uh, want to wish you good luck and uh, congratulations on your upcoming nuptials there. Uh, I know you're, is it, is it the week after the draft that you're getting married? Yeah, I set that up nice. So married or uh, drafted Nashville one weekend, and then the following weekend is the wedding. And so every year I can I can plan on the weekend after the draft being a nice little vacation celebrating the anniversary. So don't think that wasn't unintentional. <laughs> well, I for your sake I hope the draft date doesn't move because I'm sitting here. I have to worry about this every year because my daughter was born the Wednesday after the draft. So I cut that close. And so now I have to worry about birthday parties and such and <laughs> dance recitals. Cause this year I have a dance recital on the sat on uh, the Saturday after the draft, her birthday party, the Sunday after the draft, then another dance recital the Monday after the draft. This is what you have to look forward to, Joe. This is what you have to look forward to. Well, the the thing is, the thing is, anniversaries are not specific days, right? I mean, they are, but they aren't. You they kind of them. are. As long as it's the week, the weekend. Hey, the weekend 
after, right? It's going to be close, right? It's always going to be close, Brian. Kids are a different story. I don't, I don't have an answer there. We'll, we'll, we'll focus <laughs> on the things we can control right now there, Brian. Right, 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 right. I got married February the 27th, Joe. Think about nothing happens on February 27th, Joe. <laughs> not bad, not bad. Joe, tell everybody where we can follow your work. Uh, yeah, the best spot is on Twitter, at the Joe Marino. Uh, I have two podcasts per day and a ton of written content. So to keep track of it all, twitter.com, at the Joe Marino. Joe, man, thanks a lot for joining me tonight. Yeah, anytime, Brian. That was Joe Marino of the Draft Network and the Locked On Bills and Draft Dudes podcast. One of the best in the business out there. Follow him on Twitter at the Joe Marino. Always enjoy talking to Joe. Uh, I see him uh, every year now at the Senior Bowl. Uh, him and Kyle Krabs and John Ledyard and uh, the rest of the Draft Network crew. They're phenomenal people. And uh, I recommend everything they do with the draftnetwork.com. Uh, Check all that out. Um, as I said earlier, you can find my new mock draft and uh, latest piece on deep sleepers at deepfrieddraft.com. Check that out. And as always, follow me on Twitter at Deep Fried Draft. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Until, until next time.